All right, we are in uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29 tonight. Um, on page 1259 of the Pew Bible, if you feel like reading from there. Uh, this is just one of my favorite stories in Scripture. There is so much here. Uh, it is hard uh, to narrow it down, and so I did a poor job of narrowing it down this week, and I'll talk to you about that in a second. But uh, we're in the Gospel of John, again, 20, 19 through 29. Many of you know it as the story of what's been often called Doubting Thomas. Uh, it says this, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who who have not seen and yet have come to believe. The word of God in Scripture for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. All right, so most, most weeks I am choosing between sermons when I get up here on a Sunday. I've worked all week trying to figure out which lane to try to get in, which lane I should travel with, because there's always a lot of different ways to look at any given Scripture. This week I want to try something a little different and I want to try like three or four lanes at once. I know that's, uh, that's it's precarious when it comes to navigation, but I want to try it nonetheless. And I will admit that a better, more focused preacher could probably just choose one, but I am no such preacher. Um, I essentially want to talk three things out tonight. And one of them honestly probably doesn't even count as a sermon, if I'm honest with you. But let's call them three little sermons uh, in one. First, I want to redeem the reputation of Thomas. Second, I want to endorse the benefit of doubt in our lives. And finally, I want to celebrate the beautiful image of God that we have uh, through Christ in this story. Um, so first, first I want to redeem the reputation of Thomas. Um, if you've heard me speak much about Thomas, you've heard me talk some about this before. And again, this counts probably more as a campaign, a sermon, if I'm honest with you. But I consider uh, Thomas to have been very unfairly characterized by us uh, as Christians. Uh, consider this. Consider that Thomas already has a nickname stated in Scripture, the twin. He has a nickname. The Bible tells us what his nickname is. And yet he has been saddled with another name altogether by Christians in the past two millennia. The Bible says twin. We say Doubting Thomas. Now granted, the twin is not exactly an awe-inspiring name. It's not the name of a professional wrestler I would choose to cheer for. 
It's not that cool of a name. Peter gets The Rock. That's a good nickname. But obviously the twin is better than Doubting. Doubting Thomas, that's a terrible name. And it's just mean. Why does this one thing that we kind of interpret as a bad moment in his life, although I would say we should recast that idea, why would that one thing may be made then his name for all of time? I mean, we never call Peter denying Peter or drowning Peter or devil Peter after Christ calls him Satan. I would like to. I think that's kind of fun if we just called him devil Peter from now on. But that is not how we talk about Peter because Peter is not the worst moments of his life. And yet here's how Thomas goes down in our history. Doubting Thomas. I should submit that we should get rid of that name altogether, that we should not speak it anymore in this community. And I will give you at least four reasons in this campaign I would like to launch as to why we should no longer call him Doubting Thomas. First reason, we know from Scripture that Thomas, and this doesn't sound very theological, but Thomas was way more macho than the other disciples, and I think that warrants him a better name. We know this because, as you remember a couple weeks ago, as we studied in John 11 and talked about the death and resuscitation of Lazarus by Jesus, that when Jesus tells his disciples that Judas has, uh, or that uh, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and they need to go and help him, and then he clarifies that he has died, and he says, we need to go back to Judea and raise Lazarus from the dead, they say to him, do not go to Judea. They just tried to stone you in Judea. If you go there, they're going to try to kill you. And he lets, lets them know that he is heading that way regardless. And then we are told one thing that one disciple says, Thomas. Thomas says, and I quote from John eleven sixteen, let us go also so that we may die with him. That is macho. Thomas does not yet understand or believe in resurrection. Keep that in mind. That hasn't happened yet. He believes that if Jesus goes to Judea, he will get killed. And he says, all right, Let's do this. I guess we get to die too. And not all of you will get this reference, but he is the Leroy Jenkins of all of these disciples. Remember, the rock will end up lying to a little servant girl about even knowing Jesus later on. But the twin, the twin is up to walking into his own death. He is Jesus' ride and die, and that should warrant a better nickname. That kind of bravery warrants a better reputation than doubting Thomas. Secondly, my second uh, case towards this is that uh, all the other disciples in this story that we read today, all these other disciples were scared and hiding in a locked room when Jesus visits them the first time. They're scared of the Jewish authorities. They're scared that they might be killed next. So they go to a room, they hide, and they lock the doors. And Thomas was not with them which makes all, it makes total sense based on what we know from John 11. Thomas is not scared of dying. Thomas is still out there doing things like he should be doing. It means he's the only one that was still out there after Jesus died. Again, he missed Jesus because he wasn't hiding out. He should be commended for that, not given a bad name. Third point I'd like to make in the case of renaming Thomas, all that he asked for, when he heard the other disciples' testimony, all he asked for was what they had already received. He wasn't asking for special treatment. He didn't ask for anything that no one else got to have. In fact, I would argue he wasn't doubting God at all. I would argue he was doubting the testimony of the disciples who claimed to see Jesus. 
Those same disciples that later on, a week later, are still in the room, even after they've seen Jesus, and Jesus has given them a mission to go out in the world and do. He just wanted to know for himself. He didn't believe what the disciples who were still in the room had said. He wanted to know for himself, and so would you, and so would I. He didn't require anything special, just something more than those hiding disciples' word for it. That's understandable to me. Finally, fourth thing I'll say, he never even actually does put his hands on the wound or finger in the side or any of those special things he says he would need to do to believe. In fact, you could argue he believes to a greater degree than anyone else with the same amount of information. He sees Jesus. Jesus offers to have him touch the wounds, but he doesn't even do it. Thomas immediately says, quote, my Lord and my God. Keep in mind that when all the other disciples saw Jesus the first time and got to, got to experience him, they had not yet made that profession. It says they rejoiced, but he is the first one to call Christ God. Mary calls him Rabbi and Lord. The disciples rejoice. Thomas is the first to name him as God. Thomas identifies him correctly as God and makes that profession immediately upon seeing him. It's no small thing that he's the first to say that, yet it's largely ignored. We concentrate on the doubting part. So, Thomas was braver than the other disciples before and after Jesus' death. He only wanted to verify the testimony of people who were showing no evidence of the claims they were making, and he was the only one to actually profess Jesus as God. Let those with ears hear. Stop calling him Doubting Thomas. He deserves better. In my eyes, Thomas is the hero of this story. And again, this probably doesn't count as a sermon, and I'm not sure what possible difference it'll make in your life when you leave tonight. But this is a cause I have adopted, and I will not let it stand, and I will not stay silent. Okay, I will now descend from my soapbox in that campaign and move on to sermon number two tonight. Sermon number two. Sermonette, maybe? I don't know. Number two. Maybe doubt shouldn't be as universally considered a pejorative term as it is. Thomas gets a bad name, but so does doubt. I know that many of you, like me, were brought up to fear doubt above almost everything. Maybe you were told to not ask certain questions when you brought them up in Sunday school class. Maybe you were taught to simply accept everything you heard in church or everything you were told by those in charge because that's what faith is. Maybe you were instructed to avoid even the possibility of exposing yourself to other people's questions through reading those kind of books or listening to that kind of music. I was told when I decided I was going to go to seminary that I should be careful. I was going to give my life to the study of God, and I was told, be careful. Don't let seminary ruin you. Don't let seminary get you asking questions. Make sure you go to, I was told, a, quote, Bible-believing seminary, as opposed to what? I'm not sure. But we all knew what was meant by that. Be sure to go someplace that teaches exactly what we do. Be sure you go someplace that only reaffirms what we've already said. Don't go getting all those questions and stuff. Only bad things follow. So if you're like me, many of us learn to keep our mouths shut about our questions, about our doubts, about our concerns. In other words, we were taught in church to lie. 
you know, for Jesus. And even when those who were in charge, and many of us had these experiences, those who were teaching us to believe these things were personally very questionable. Don't say anything. Don't ask questions. Don't doubt. And I would like to say that I believe that is a terrible approach to faith. A terrible approach to faith for several reasons. For one, any expression of religious faith that encourages you to lie is a bad one. Any expression of faith that encourages you to lie is a bad one and certainly cannot be based, no matter what they say, on the one who claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. Also, what does it say about God when we are that scared of doubt and questions? How fragile do we think God is exactly that our questions are too difficult a burden for God to handle? I'll tell you a little bit about me as a parent. I entertain approximately 45,000 expressions of doubt and questioning per day from my children. And some from my son as well. And that is more accurate than an estimate. 45,000 sounds about right. I don't know if there's anything I say to my children that is not questioned in some manner. And I don't mean questions in the sense of like childlike wonderment about why is the sky blue and other things that I can't answer but I make up answers for. I mean they question me, my integrity, my intelligence, my ability to make any wise decision on their behalf whatsoever. I get questioned all day, every day by my children. And as it turns out, even with those 45,000 questions of my own character and discernment, it turns out I still like them. I still love them. They're still my beloved children. It's touch and go on some days, but I can handle it. I still love my kids. We're good. And I would hope God is a better parent than me. Why would the God of the universe be offended by genuine questions or doubt? How fragile do we really think God is? How fragile is the faith that we have built if it can't sustain a question or two? And finally, another reason I think it's a bad approach to faith and the defense of doubt. How can one grow without pushing against and questioning one's current state of being or believing? It's the only way growth can happen. Inherent in growth is rethinking or reframing the way things are. There is no other way to grow in any area of life than to push against whatever boundaries we have. You cannot grow and remain the same. Those are contradictory states of being. Show me someone who has no questions and has never struggled with doubts about the world as it was presented to them, and I will show you someone who is stunted or lying. I'm not claiming that you should manufacture doubt where it doesn't naturally occur, or that you are somehow inauthentic if you're not doubting everything all the time. That's just pessimism. It's a very different thing. But questioning and doubt are not antithetical to faith. I think they are the mean, one of the means by which it grows. Do you have doubts? Do you have questions? Do you have concerns about the faith that has been handed to you, about the theology that you have heard, about the nature of God that's presented to you? Do you have those kind of questions and doubts? It's okay. I believe that's just one of the signs that show that you are actually engaged in it. Now, they shouldn't be the end of the story, and sometimes they are used as an excuse for that. 
but it certainly has its healthy place within it. I don't think doubt is something we should fear. Which brings me to our third and final sermonette of the evening, the beautiful image we have of God in this story. I think it's an amazing thing to know we have a God who responds to the disciples' fear and the disciples' doubt the way Christ responds to his followers in this story. I don't think that Thomas is the only one who gets too little consideration or too little credit in the story. I don't think Jesus gets enough. Consider how he behaves here. First, Jesus shows up and brings a word of peace to the disciples, even as they have run and hidden in fear. After they slept in the garden while he struggled and sweat blood, after they drew the sword when they were supposed to keep it on their side, after they denied Jesus when he was suffering deeply at the crucifixion, after they run and hid and locked the doors, after all of this, Jesus comes and the words that come out of his mouth first are peace be with you. He brings only peace to them. No anger, no disappointment, no correction whatsoever. Peace. There's no asking why they're hidden, no rehashing of their denials or their fears or their failures. Jesus brings them only peace, forgiveness, and a mission to go out into the world and represent him. Then Jesus returns a week later to find them again, still in a closed room. Now with Thomas, who has expressed some doubt in their story, for sure. But they are all still in a closed room after the resurrected Jesus has given them a mission, has breathed the Spirit into their lives. Whoever they don't forgive is not going to experience Christ's forgiveness, and they are still in the room. And Jesus starts with peace. Peace be with you. Jesus brings only peace again. Peace to the one who won't believe until he gets everything that everyone else has supposedly received. Peace to those who have already gotten a visit yet seem to maybe still be immobilized in the room. No scolding, no anger, no throwing it in their face, no questioning of why Thomas needed to see him like everyone else did. Just peace and a blessing for those who are not present and an offering of himself. He doesn't just offer himself, he offers his scars. And that's a profound thing to me as well. He willingly offers Thomas the very things that most wounded him. He offers himself in the most vulnerable of ways to the one with questions. And that is a beautiful thing. Maybe you've experienced some version of this in your life. Maybe from a friend. I know I have, and I think it's a holy act. Have you ever made a question or a need or a doubt or a hurt known to someone else? Trusted them with your wound? And had them respond by offering their own wounds and their own scars? Had them return it with honesty and vulnerability? Have them show you the kindness of casting off the charade of invulnerability or having all the answers and show you where their own hurt resides? I don't know that there's a truer way to be a friend to another person. Those are the kinds of friendships whose love permanently have altered my life, and I'm sure you could say the same. It's beautiful, and it's redemptive. And this scripture points to a God, a creator of all things, who embodies that kind of humble love. It's an astounding thought. 
that the creator of all things would approach the deniers and the doubters with his wounds and scars. It's a beautiful idea. I could spend a lot more time reflecting on this, but I'm on my third sermon already. So, I'll let you chew on that image yourself this week. There's no way to tie uh, three sermonettes together in a reasonable amount of time, but I do want to get you to dinner. So here we go. What do we do with all this? Well, maybe at first, again, we can go a little easier on Thomas. Maybe we shouldn't judge him or label him in any way that Jesus did not. And maybe if we begin to go a little easier on Thomas and his doubts and his questions, maybe if we do that, we can begin to go a little easier on ourselves as well. Why? Because your doubts, your questions, your struggles, your fears do not get the last word with Christ. They are part of a larger story of grace that you are in the middle of as we speak. To your doubts and your fear, Christ offers only his peace. He offers only himself, his own body broken, his own blood shed. He offers his own wounds and own scars and his own love without condition. Take it easy on Thomas. Take it easy on yourself. For Christ offers not only that which might lead you to believe, but also the privilege to go into this world and do the same for others. So go easy on yourself. Go easy on each other. Because life is hard and scary sometimes. Sometimes we find ourselves locked in a room and scared out of our minds. Sometimes we have questions and doubts and can't seem to believe what others say they do. Life can be hard on us. But thankfully, Christ is not. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you are a wounded redeemer. That you did not present yourself to us in this world on a cloud, handing down all the answers. But instead, you took flesh and blood. You became a baby, dependent upon its mother for life, for food, vulnerable and in need. You walked with us. You dwelt among us. You died at our hands and whispered forgiveness over us. No matter how little we deserved it, you brought us only the offer of peace. Only your own wounded love and a call to embody it ourselves in this world. And our prayer is that every person in this room would find peace in the midst of their doubts and questions. That they would know today, as we say often in this room, that there's nothing they can do, nothing they can believe or question that would make you love them any more or less than you already do. That you are a God who offers them peace and redemption and a calling in this world. God, may we be kinder to each other. May we be kinder to ourselves. May we love as you have loved us first. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.